Hello, hello, everyone. This is Chad. You're listening to Mission Daily. And in today's episode, we talk to Ian Small, the CEO of Evernote. Evernote is a fascinating company for personal productivity and a lot more. It's an extension of your brain. And in this episode, Ian and I talk about his start in business, what he was up to in the early dark days of Apple, what he did after that, and his first CEO job, which was at a company called Talkbox, which was acquired. We talk about his transition into Evernote, how he went about building the company culture, and a lot more in today's episode on Mission Daily. Enjoy. Today's thank you for sponsorship and world-class products and services goes out to Trinet. I'm the founder of a media business and I need all the help and organization I can get. One of the biggest problems I've faced in the past is HR. I say past because I'm not facing it anymore. I educated myself and got the team at Trinet on my side. Trinet and their expert team help us at mission with our payroll, benefits, and compliance. Trinet offers full service HR solutions tailored to your industry. So educate yourself and get the HR help you need. Whether your team is 10 people or a thousand, Trinet has you covered. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Ian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. Good to meet you. So, Ian, where are you calling in from today? Uh, I am calling in from beautiful San Mateo, California, where I am working from home. And working from home, obviously, this is a topic that's very uh, timely right now. Coronavirus is going on, and that brings us to the subject of Evernote, right? You're the CEO of the company, and I would love to hear you describe it for people that still don't know what Evernote is. Sure. If you've uh, not uh, had the chance to encounter us before, uh, we like to talk about Evernote as being a, a productivity app that really serves as an extension of your brain. Uh, it's an application that runs on iOS, on Android, on Windows, on Mac, and on web. Uh, going to have Linux later this year. Uh, but we were built on a very simple idea originally, uh, and that was that our founding mission was, was quite simple. It was to remember everything. And really at the core, uh, that's what Evernote is uh, really about. We help you capture and organize everything that's important to you, whether it's your next great idea or, I don't know, the receipt from your business lunch, notes from your last meeting, your coronavirus shopping list. Uh, if you need to remember it, we're really here to help. And uh, I think that's, that's what Evernote has been for a long time. Uh, these days, um, as the world keeps moving faster and gets a little bit harder to understand these days, we are working to extend that and really shift just from being about remembering to also being about accomplishing. And we talked today about Evernote really being focused on helping users remember everything and accomplish anything. Ian, where'd you grow up at? Uh, I'm Canadian. I was uh, born in Montreal and lived there for about 12 years. Uh, and then uh, my family moved uh, from Montreal in the mid-70s to Toronto. And uh, uh, I grew up in, in Toronto. When you were growing up in Toronto, was there much business experience, would you say? Or how did you kind of cut your teeth on entrepreneurship? Well, it's pretty funny, actually. I, I grew up in a, a sort of family of accountants. My dad was a chartered accountant. Um, uh, my mom was a commerce major. Uh, my older brother got an MBA. And, and all I knew was uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with business whatsoever. Um, I just wanted to build things. So I went out and got an engineering degree. And I 
promised solemnly in the way that, you know, teenagers are likely to do that I would never do anything like run a business or be a CEO. Uh, so it uh, shows you what you know when you're a teenager sometimes. I went out and, and uh, studied engineering, did a bachelor's degree in Toronto, and then a master's degree in computer science, and then started uh, actually a PhD in computer science, but ended up moving down uh, to the Valley to work uh, with Apple. Uh, and helped invent um, some stuff when I was at Apple. And that's sort of what got me on the road to being interested in uh, inventing the future. When you were at Apple, what type of uh, projects were you working on? And you know, when did you join? And what type of things were you up to there? I joined Apple in, in, uh, in the dark days, uh, sort of uh, in the late 80s. Um, and uh, I was there through the mid-90s. So I was there about six years, 89, I think, to 95. Uh, that was uh, sort of at the end of John Scully's run and before Steve Jobs showed up. And I worked on a whole bunch of things. I actually went to Apple to work in a group called the Human Interface Group. Human Interface is what uh, we used to call the thing we call user experience these days. And the Human Interface Group at Apple was responsible for inventing sort of future experiences uh, and uh, especially ones that would have a significant human interface component or user interface component to them. And so uh, while I was there, I, I worked on a whole bunch of things. Probably the one that uh, you've heard of is QuickTime. Uh, so I was around about, and uh, I was uh, one of the sort of peripheral contributors to QuickTime. But uh, I then went and worked on something called QuickTime VR, which was a virtual reality extension to QuickTime, which is really the precursor to what you see in uh, like Google Street View today, um, sure. the ability to look around in places like that. But uh, yeah, a bunch of stuff uh, while I was at Apple, uh, some of which uh, took a long time to ship, some of which never did, but uh, it was all fun. That's so cool. And uh, yeah, I love how you alluded to the dark days there. When you were moving on and you know when you first became a CEO, I'm curious, what was that uh, Genesis like? And um, was that at uh, Talkbox where you were first held the CEO role? Yeah, Talkbox was was uh, my first CEO job, and I think um, I had decided probably about five years before that that from a professional standpoint that I wanted to to be a CEO. And you know, there's there's a bunch of ways in Silicon Valley to be a CEO. If you're going to do it uh, at a startup, the easiest way is to found the company. But there's sort of a, a subset of, of people who do that, and they tend to be the people with all the biggest ideas. Um, and after a while working here, you discover that some people are really good at that and some people aren't so good at that. Um, and uh, I'm better at running with ideas uh, than I am at coming up with them in the first place. And so for me, uh, if I wanted to be a CEO and I wanted to work in a startup uh, context, I needed to be able to come in and and join a company that that needed a CEO for some reason to help get it on to its next step. And I think the biggest thing for me in getting there was realizing that uh, while I had been working in engineering and running engineering teams and building products from an engineering perspective, if I wanted to be a CEO, I needed to ladder out of engineering and into product and become a product person. And, you know, at my heart, I'm I'm still a product guy. Uh, I, I happen to be a CEO, but that's the place that I come from. And uh, the decision to to lateral out of um, pure engineering into having a product-focused role really set me up for uh, getting the first CEO job. 
That's awesome. And when you first landed that job, how did expectations differ from, you know, what you were uh, faced with when you, when you got there? Oh, well, TalkBox was, was a, was an interesting um, situation. You know, they, when I came into the company, um, the board knew that it wasn't getting from the company what it thought was possible. It didn't really know what the problem was. And so uh, at the end, it decided that the right thing to do was to, to bring in a, a CEO from outside to help the people who were inside the company. And, you know, more than anything, I think that gave the board a view into what was going on in the company. And over the course of the next uh, year, we, we pivoted the company away from the place that it had been into a, a different uh, product direction and then built the company out from there and, and eventually sold it. Telefonica, which is one of the world's largest telecommunications companies. When you come in as a CEO uh, into a startup, you're rarely coming into a company that is moving up and to the right, because if everything was going right and all the signals were showing green, then they probably wouldn't be changing CEOs. So you know it's never going to be quite what you think coming in, but you're generally prepared for um, you know the direction of the problems um, that you find. And I think at, uh, at TalkBox, in the end, we needed to kind of work on the culture of the company on the inside and, and work on product direction um, in order to get it heading in a more successful direction that was sustainable. So when it comes to working on company culture, how do you go about influencing that, especially as you're, you know, first time or new CEO? Well, it's a pretty interesting experience because, um, you know, I had the previous companies I had been with we had built the culture from the ground up. I had been there sort of early enough that um, you kind of shape the culture as you go. And it's very different to go into an existing company with an existing culture. And if it's a, and if culture is part of the problem, you know, changing and transforming a culture is a very different uh, skill set from building one from scratch and then trying to sort of keep it focused and, and on point with where you're trying to go. I can, I can remember to this day about two years in uh, to the time I, I was at uh, TalkBox, uh, one of our directors of engineering commenting uh, in, in a meeting all of a sudden out of the blue said, you know, I think we finally got a culture we want to protect. And I, I, I said to him, I said, Oh, you know, you're right. And then we had to sort of think about how had we gotten there? In the end, I think a lot of people, you know, think that the easy way to think about culture is that it's, it's the five words you write on a piece of paper or a poster and you put them up on the wall. And I think the better, the better way to think about culture is, I can't remember whose line it is, but it's a famous line, culture is what people do when you're looking the other way. Sure. And I think in the end, if you're going to transform culture, you have to do two things. You have to lead that transformation from the top and you need the CEO and the management team to model the culture that you want the company to move towards. And that's not the words that they say, that is the actions that they take because people look through all the words that any leader says, they only pay attention to their actions. And if their actions are consistent with their words, then over time, they'll listen to what you say. But first and foremost, they look at what you do. And I think if you want to change a culture, you have to model a set of behavior that is sort of emblematic of what you want to see the company move towards. 
and have people see that you don't just exhibit that behavior when it's easy and you don't just exhibit that behavior when they're looking at you. You exhibit that behavior even when it's hard and even when it hurts. Sure. And then people start to realize that's where you're trying to go and you can make progress. And I think, you know, that was true at TalkBox. It's probably also true at Evernote over the course of the, of the last year and a half. Yeah, definitely wise words. When you came into Evernote, I'm curious, what state was the company in and when did you join and uh, how'd you get started uh, becoming the CEO there? So I joined late last year, uh, sorry, late 2018. I somehow skipped over all of 2019. Uh, and uh, so now it's been about uh, 15 months, uh, 16 months, I guess. And uh, I was brought in by the board because uh, they thought they wanted to have the company go in a slightly different direction. Uh, and they thought that a CEO change uh, made sense as a part of that. And I had the skill set that the company would need going forward. You know, the first thing I did when I, when I came in was, was frankly do a lot of listening because it doesn't matter how many board decks you can read before you come in. It doesn't matter how many, um, you know, interviews you have with board members and with people associated with the company. There is no substitute to actually talking to employees to find out what's really going on. And there's no substitute to talking to users uh, or customers, depending on what kind of company you are, to find out uh, what they think about what's going on in the company. And if you do it right, the employees give you an inside-out view of what's going on at the company, and the customers give you an outside-in view of what's going on at the company. And somewhere in between those two lies the truth. And somewhere in between those two lies the reality that uh, you as a leader have to decide you know, how you're going to navigate and how you're going to move the company forward from the place that it's in. And so I think, you know, we said, you know, what do you do when you start? You basically start by talking to a lot of people and listening. You know, sometimes people like to put fancy names on that. I just think it's about spending a lot of time listening and talking and asking questions because you can't come in with a set recipe for how you're going to fix it because no two companies are the same and no two situations are the same. You have a whole bunch of tools you can use as a leader, but you don't know which ones to use in which order until you really understand what's wrong and can diagnose the problem and figure out how you think you're going to fix it. Definitely good perspective. And it's a good reminder too. It's so hard to see everything and it takes often months of, you know, digging into the details, having the conversations with smart people before you really get a lay of the land. As you started to get a lay of the land at Evernote, what were some of the uh, opportunities that you could share with us or maybe business units that you focused on to revitalize first? Yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, where you got to at, uh, over those early, probably couple of months at Evernote was this realization that the, the users and the employees both knew what was wrong was that, you know, we had really not paid enough attention to fundamentals for a prolonged period of time. And because of that, the um, software had sort of drifted from the promise that initially made uh, to the users. And uh, we had developed this sort of a very divergent set of applications across different platforms, all of which were supposed to represent the same um, system and the same service. And we needed to do something about that to fundamentally get back to basics. And early on, I, uh, I wrote a, a letter to the customers that, that basically just said, hey, you know, for, for the next chunk of time, and we're not talking a few months, we're talking a year, possibly more, 
we're not going to be trying to ship a bunch of new features and new capabilities. We're going to focus on fixing what we have. And we're going to focus on trying to create a, a more coherent and consistent experience for our users and also focus on creating a platform that we can innovate on top of. And if we can do those two things, we will not only have delivered a better version of the Evernote that they have today, their customers have today, but we will also set ourselves up to innovate into the future. And that's really the journey that we set off on uh, at the beginning of last year. Hey everybody, we're taking a time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. If there's one thing I am about, and in fact, one thing the whole mission team is about, you know it's accelerated learning. One way I do that is by learning from the best. When it comes to learning about HR, the team and resources Trinet provides are my go-to source. Just this week, Trinet published a blog and webinar series to help small and medium-sized businesses manage the impact of COVID-19. It covers actions you can take to be prepared should one of your employees test positive for coronavirus. It also covers other factors you should consider, including employee compensation, if your business is required to shut down due to the pandemic. There's lots happening now in real time. Go to Trinet.com and get the information you need to protect your business. Trinet will continue to post the latest as recommendations as legislation is changing on a daily basis. So when it comes to the future and when you're thinking about, you know, extending the human brain via Evernote, are there any, you know, wild ambitions, ideas or technologies you're kind of looking at right now to build that future? I think we are sort of less about wild technologies and, and more about just doing basic things well sure. uh, at this point. Um, I think it is fair to say that when uh, our founder, Stepan Patrikov, first had this idea and this vision, the possibilities of what it could mean for a software program to be an extension of your brain were a lot more limited than they are today, right? I mean, 15 years ago, you know, remembering everything was a pretty good version of being an extension of your brain. You know, these days, computers can see, computers can make decisions, computers can, uh, you know, suggest things. So, there's definitely been a sort of sea change in the landscape of technology that you can pull upon if you're trying to kind of move out of remembering everything and into accomplishing everything. And I think as a company, we'll do that. But it's less about wild and crazy technologies and more about experiences that delight users. And that's something I think that Evernote has always been good at. You know, over time, we've been a leader in uh, things like image recognition and uh, scanning and being able to search the text inside images, uh, be able to, you know, years ago, take a photo of a business card and have it turn into a contact entry. Things that we take for granted today, we were leaders on. And I think we will get back um, to leading in some of these areas uh, where we do talk about um, Evernote not simply just being a uh, uh, repository of all of the uh, information that's most important to you, but also uh, a tool that can really help you get things done. And when it comes to getting things done, are there any specific features or new things that Evernote has or is offering now that are helping people get done in a new way or maybe faster than ever before? I mean, I think the thing that we've always known about Evernote is that um, everybody's Evernote is an individual experience. Evernote is really a platform for productivity. 
And if you look at the way any two people use it, you're much more likely to find uh, their use of Evernote being completely different than you are to find it completely the same. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do is help our new users get set up into that world more easily. When you, when you look at the sort of most dedicated users of Evernote, they are uh, very much uh, people who have, at this point, possibly spent several years developing a workflow inside Evernote. That is where their life, you know, literally happens, uh, that Evernote is the center of, of their day-to-day activity. We'd like to make it easier uh, for a user who shows up and doesn't really know what Evernote is for to actually figure some of those things out and so that we can set up Evernote in a way that is uh, more likely to be helpful for them for day one. That's something we've been working on over the past you know, a few months with some of our onboarding for new users and things like that. But I think the majority um, of, the, of the advances that uh, we're going to see that we expect to ship this year we haven't been talking about publicly yet, mostly because we want to have a very uh, real conversation with uh, our user base and focus on what's in front of us, not what's down the road. And I'm really curious to know, how has your personal productivity evolved since starting at Evernote and getting to know the product more, starting to use it more? What's your, yeah, what's your daily routine like with it? Well, I have to say that I'm an inveterate list maker. I like the ability to um, keep track of the things that are in front of me, keep track of the things that I've done uh, and keep track of, of where I am in that process. And so uh, for me, Evernote uh, occupies two roles. One, it's the place that I write. I do um, because Evernote is actually a fairly distributed company. We have uh, multiple offices in the U S and offices in uh, Chile offices in Japan I communicate a fair amount with the company uh, in writing. Every Monday uh, morning, I send uh, a letter to the company uh, talking about sort of what's top of mind uh, for me at the moment. And so I always start that process in Evernote, and it's always a process that starts with ideas of the things I might choose to write about, choosing an idea, starting to flesh out what that looks like, and eventually turning it into um, a draft of the email that I will actually post. And and in the end, that... uh, that document literally just gets copied out of Evernote and pasted into email and sent to the company, sort of one end of the spectrum. And the other is that, you know, everything that's in front of me, that's uh, an item that I have to keep track of, an item that I have to do, an issue that I have to solve, all of that is managed for me in Evernote. Very cool. And when it comes to apps or applications that are outside of Evernote that might be tangentially related you know, what's your personal tech stack look like? Are there any other uh, tools that you're using on a daily basis that Evernote syncs with really well? Well, obviously, you know, Evernote is the center of everything. (laughs) But I would say, (laughs) uh, I'm probably a little biased to that point of view. I would say right now, I'm uh, in this new work from home mode in particular, I've got to say number two app on my list is, is Zoom, right? I mean, I'm just spending all day long in Zoom, and there's no integration between Zoom and Evernote. But my world today is very much one of being on Evernote uh, and being in Zoom. Uh, Evernote ties into you know the the key pieces of software that we use around us, so it allows me to connect um, into Google Drive. It allows me to connect into and, and store like all of 
all of my PDFs and things like that. I can keep in Evernote and I can search them properly and find what I'm looking for. Those are the kind of integrations we, we focus most on. Uh, but that's, that's most of what I do. There is, you know, there's some definitely, uh, geekier things that I do in the space where I use, uh, apps like Ifty to set up some notes for me automatically every week and things like that. But that's probably outside the realm of what, you know, normal people would actually do. And when it comes to the larger market, where do you think market adoption is when it comes to Evernote? Do you think a lot of people are still, you know, kind of stumbling blindly and looking for a personal productivity tool? Are most people aware of Evernote? What's market penetration like for you all? So uh, at the end of the day, we, we think about the market for Evernote as, as largely being driven by the market for uh, knowledge workers. Uh, and, and one of the things that's, uh, I think, true about the world is the knowledge worker market is only getting larger and will only get larger over the coming years. There's fundamentally um, three big players in the market that we're in. There's us, there's Google, and there's Microsoft. And uh, at the moment, we each have kind of sort of about a third of the market. And so uh, I do know that if you look at it, the uh, between the three of us, the market of knowledge workers is not hugely penetrated. So there's no shortage of growth out there in the market. I think the challenge has been that we need to make the uh, tool progressively more useful for a broader range of users who call themselves knowledge workers who want perhaps more help or more assistance than uh, any of those uh, products, Evernote or uh, Microsoft's or Google's uh, do today. I think right now there are uh, particularly strong um, products for power users, but I think um, there's more that they can do to bring a broader swath uh, of users to the, to the market. And when more users are coming in or you're thinking about how to attract them, what type of you know, marketing campaigns, any type of messaging do you feel like is really top of the funnel right now? Uh, you know, you have so many people working from home. Maybe it's not just knowledge work. Is it for everything? I'm curious to hear what your messaging is like there. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the reality is almost all of our, uh, we're not an advertising driven company. Almost all of our adoption is done through word of mouth, not through you know, large-scale advertising campaigns. But I, I do think that, as you say, the world is, is changing at the moment and there's a bunch of different opportunities out there. I think one of the things that, that I think about uh, is people are feeling uh, a little bit of a loss of control over their lives, obviously, uh, with the world shifting and going into shelter-in-place orders and people working from home and people you know, working remote possibly for the first time in their lives, uh, even as knowledge workers, sometimes people uh, working with having their kids around because, you know, school's shut as well. This is a massive shift in the way people work and, and you're bound to feel uh, a little bit out of control. And I think one of the things that Evernote can do for people in this, in this new environment is help them give a, help them recover some sense of being in control. And literally by, uh, by doing things as simple as giving you a place to capture information, to make plans, and to get organized, whether it's for work or whether you're trying to plan how to keep the kids busy or trying to figure out whether the kids are 
on track with their remote schooling at this point, where you're just trying to keep track of the tasks you still have ahead of you. Just the process of, of stopping for a moment and writing that down and ticking items off as you get them done will give you a sense that not only things are getting done, not only that you're making progress, but giving you a sense that once again, maybe you're back in control. And that's not about an advertising campaign that we're going to go out and, and run because I don't think of, you know, the coronavirus as, as a marketing opportunity. Um, I think of it as a thing that people all over the world are trying to figure out how to get through and that, you know, our user base is probably lucky enough to be um, less directly impacted than many other uh, demographics and, and segments in the population. Some will be, but I think a lot, a lot of people who are tend to be Evernote users are probably knowledge workers and so can probably work from home. But even that is, you know, full of disruption in their lives and just giving people a way to help them get through that, I think is a huge contribution that we can make to those people who, who choose to try to use Evernote to help. For sure. And what are you doing when it comes to life outside of Evernote? How are you thinking about work-life integration? What are you up to when you're out in the Bay Area? Uh, what are you doing when you're traveling? You know, maybe traveling's off the radar at the moment, <laughs> but uh, what are you doing for work-life integration? Well, you know, these, these days, um, things are Things are a little slow. As you say, there's, there's no travel going on anywhere. Uh, there's not even much leaving your home going on right now. Uh, but uh, I am actually um, a, a closet uh, DIYer. And so, you know, we've been uh, slowly working on remodeling uh, parts, of, uh, parts of the home that we live in. And uh, certainly when you're uh, not allowed to go outside, and not allowed to travel. It's an opportunity as long as you have the supplies in-house to get a few more things painted um, and a few more things finished up, and we're doing our best to take advantage of that. Even, even for someone who's got hobbies they can pursue inside their house, this uh, sheltering in place, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's not a normal existence, I think, for most of us to, to be inside for so many hours of the day um, trying to stop the, the virus from spreading. So there's some interesting takes going on right now. Have you seen Dr. Michael Levitt's take from Stanford University? He's the guy that predicted the basically successful ramp down of coronavirus in China. Uh, I don't know if you've seen his take. I, I haven't seen his recent take now. Yeah, it's that's got to be some of the most interesting research I've seen so far. Um, that's just a tangent. I won't go down too deep down that rabbit hole. But the, the kind of larger point I was uh, going for there is that business is eventually going to return to normal. And I interview a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives and people who are allocating large amounts of capital. I'm curious, what's your take on the aftermath of the crisis? When capital starts to become you know, free flowing again, do you see a golden age? Do you see a boom? Because so many things right now are underpriced. We have a trillion dollar stimulus coming into the market. What's your perspective on that for some, you know, from somebody that allocates capital professionally for a living? I think it's really, really hard to say. I think it's a, it's a, it's a gambler's question of how this is going to come back. I think there are people who believe that things are going to um, basically go through what, what they call a V-shaped recovery and it will bounce back very sharply. And I think there are people who 
believe that that won't be the case. And I think a huge amount of it depends on how long in each country that the country needs to isolate in order to um, try to beat back the virus. I would be delighted if we uh, are able to um, beat this thing as ably as uh, China was able to. I think we've already missed our opportunity to do what South Korea did. Uh, Obviously, um, no country wants to be in the situation Italy is in right now. And uh, I think we have to pay attention from the standpoint of thinking about the future to what's going on around the world in the world's largest economies, because those are the countries that, that, that drive where our users come from. Ian, thanks for being so generous with your time here. I'd love to get your take on one final question, which is just about business advice. So I'm sure that you talk to many founders, executives, other CEOs. When it comes to advice that you find yourself giving on a regular basis, um, what's some of the best advice that you give? And then maybe what's some of the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received uh, was probably um, when I was first taking on my first CEO job. And I went to talk to uh, a member of the board uh, of a company I'd been with previously who knew me quite well. And I said, okay, you know me pretty well. I'm going to go do um, a CEO job for the first time. What is it that I need to know? What is it that I need to think about? He said, oh, well, there's three things that are most important to being um, a CEO. The first thing is to communicate. You have to communicate constantly. He said, the second thing is to communicate some more. He said, and the third thing is when you're really tired of communicating the same thing over and over again, communicate it three more times. And I thought at the time that, okay, that that sounds a bit absurd. That's like the old real estate joke. Uh, But about six months in to my being at a talk box, I called him and I said, you know that advice about communicating? It's actually right. And I don't think it just applies to CEOs. I think it applies to anybody who wants to be a leader. It's not possible to under-communicate. The idea of communicating is, is central to any leadership position, not just to a CEO. I think from the standpoint of any leader, you can't communicate too much. Um, and if you couple communication with being as transparent as you possibly can be, and you add to that Pushing, organize, pushing decisions down into your organization, what you end up with is an organization that can move as fast as it can, making decisions that would be the same decisions that you would make if you could be there for every decision and if you could know what all of your people know in detail about the decisions they're making. And that's really the goal of a leader is to, is to create an aligned organization that's moving as fast as it can. Wise words. And Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks. By now, you know that Trinet is our sponsor for Mission Daily. You know they have amazing full-service HR solutions for your business. So what are you waiting for? When you go to trinet.com to get more information, you help support independent media like Mission Daily, and you help support our team here. And you, as a business owner or HR exec, can get top-notch service from the team at Trinet. Stop worrying about HR issues and team up with the best, Trinet. You don't have to go at it alone. Reduce your worry. You need a team and Trinet is your go-to team for HR.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.